Hello, and welcome to Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Calestis Juma, professor of the practice of international development here at the Kennedy School, who also directs the Agricultural Innovation in Africa project funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Calestis, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So by 2050, the human population is going to hit 9 billion people, more than 9 billion people. Uh, that's a lot of mouths to feed, especially with you know, global warming impacting uh, agricultural uh, agriculture all across the world, globe. What do we do to kind of meet that need that's obviously coming? Actually, we don't have to look that far to be worried about food production. We've already seen the crisis in North Africa, for example, with the Arab Spring. A large part of that has been connected to food, food increases in food prices. Mm-hmm. So the challenge, the agricultural challenge is already with us. But if you project it into the future, it means that we have to significantly increase agricultural production at a time when we know that the biological potential for many of the crops is close uh, to, to, its, to, to its limits. So what, I guess, is the solution? I mean, obviously the United States is, is as, uh, you know, agriculturally busy as you can be. Um, you've spoken before about Africa having a tremendous amount of, of land that's farmable, um, but it's not being correctly utilized. Is that part of the solution? There are two critical approaches that need to be adopted. One is to really improve productivity in the industrialized countries, which means greater use of science and technology. Mm. Uh, The second strategy is to find a way of bringing uh, underutilized agricultural land uh, under production, but to do it sustainably, Mm -hmm. to be able to use new methods that allow for more productivity over smaller and smaller pieces of land. Does that necessarily mean like organic or, or just you know better than what we've already been doing? It basically means greater use of uh, scientific advances, uh, advances in genomics. Uh, we have new methods, for example, that involve the use of satellite imagery so that we can be very specific on what we grow where. Basically to make, sa- to make agriculture more science intensive. That's really the challenge. Mm-hmm. And Africa offers a unique opportunity to be able to have a, a fresh start because 60% of the arable land available in the world today is in Africa. And therefore, Africa can start from scratch but doesn't have to repeat the way agriculture has been done uh, in the past. What's to stop it from happening right now? Why has it not already become one, you know, the, the world's breadbasket, as you know they call the states now? The, the, the most critical obstacle to agricultural expansion in Africa has been poor infrastructure. Because agriculture involves moving bulky input like seed, fertilizer, and pesticides, Mm -hmm. but also moving the produce out. Mm -hmm. So it requires significant investment in in energy, transportation, and irrigation. Uh, Today, only about 3% of African agriculture is irrigated. Uh, It's roughly 40% in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so investment in infrastructure is really the first starting point. And this, this is really going to involve large-scale uh, funding. But it's also an opportunity for the international community to come together and think about how to invest uh, in African infrastructure. So uh, you mentioned before uh, you know, genomics. The whole idea of GMO crops is obviously very 
uh, controversial. Um, there are a lot of folks out there who are really worried that proper studies haven't done been done on GMO crops, that the health ad effects aren't known, and also the the um, kind of the blowback, the natural blowback from GMO crops in terms of like super weeds uh, developing. They're worried about these problems as maybe being worse than the solution that the GMO products uh, uh, provide. What's the response to that? First, we need to think about genetic modification as just one tool in a portfolio of technological approaches. Uh, and secondly, we need to evaluate each tool based on need and in different geographical locations. Uh, Nobody is advocating the widespread of use uh, widespread use of genetically modified crops where they are not actually needed uh, when it comes to africa we are seeing that uh, african countries are starting to use them to revive old industries for example they are adopting genetically modified cotton to get industries cotton industries that have collapsed uh, restored for purposes of expanding rural development and increasing the welfare of rural communities. So I think of it as a tool. And then the second step is, is what are the risks? We need to balance between the risks uh, and the benefits. And most of the arguments about genetic modification that paint a catastrophic uh, view of the impact of, of this technology really are 20 years old. The evidence does not support it. It's not because we don't have to manage it. There are issues that need to be, to be addressed just like we need to address similar issues, in fact, in conventional crops. The, the, the real issue is that we have debates that are really 20 years old. The evidence does not support it. Uh, we have na nearly eight, 30 countries growing genetically modified crops worldwide, uh, and we have not seen the kinds of impacts that people have been pro predicting in the past. So where would you like to see the debate right now, if, if those are kind of old now? I think we need to hear more from farmers because we're hearing mostly from uh, environmentalists or rather environmental groups that are not, not necessarily uh, responsible for food production. We rarely hear the voices of farmers, especially those farmers who have been using these crops over the last 17 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very important part of enriching, enriching the policy. So... Uh Part of the African problem you've mentioned is uh, that the focus on science and technology isn't quite there at a governmental level. Um, now, you're advocating for something akin to uh, uh, the rest of the world's OECD countries where uh, there's more technological advice, science advice. Uh, it, you know, at, at a higher level. Can you explain that? Uh, actually, this is an issue that is uh, really came to my attention uh, in regard to genetically modified crops. A uh, few years ago, the African presidents asked me to put together an advisory panel uh, on helping them to decide between the two contradictory positions, those who are arguing that these crops were extremely beneficial to them and those who are arguing that it would be catastrophic. And they wanted to have an independent opinion on the subject. I produced a report, presented to the African presidents, but they didn't have a high-level high mechanisms within their own offices on how to assess and use this report, in addition to other information that they were getting from different, uh, different sources. And it became very clear to me that uh, 
if Africa is going to really become a player in all aspects of science and technology, and more specifically in agriculture, heads of state need to have science advisors who help them to sort out uh, in, in terms of being able to determine uh, what they need to be done, and secondly, how they need to do it. And right now, there isn't a single African president that has an office of science advice. And this makes it very difficult for African leaders to be able to handle the scientific advice effectively. And secondly, it makes it even harder for them to determine what kinds of technologies to adopt and for what reasons. And this is something that it has been utilized successfully around the world. Very extensively in among Asian countries. For example, Malaysia has a long history uh, of having a chief scientific advisor to the prime minister. Uh, we have Many of the OECD countries have such offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many Latin American countries, including some of the Caribbean countries, in fact, have such offices that uh, consistently help uh, the presidents to sort out uh, science advice uh, and scientific input, partly because science changes very fast. Right. As a consequence, you need somebody who is really on top of the subject matter. There is an analogy, actually, which is economics. Every, af- every president in the world has a chief economic advisor. In addition to that, almost every country has a department or a ministry of economic planning. Mm-hmm. And within the various ministries, you'll always have an economic advisor or a, an economic planning department in other ministries. And this is when the economy was being seen as very significant. We, have, we attach the same significance to science and technology today, but we have not created the high-level advisory institutions that reflect the significant role that science and technology plays in economic transformation. There's a, uh, a, a fact that a lot of people parrot out there that, um, or a fact, I, I don't even know if it's true, to be, to be perfectly honest. Uh, there's a claim that uh, there is more than enough food produced in the world um, to feed everybody. It's a question of uh, economics and um, infrastructure to bring it to people. Um, is that just going to continue to be the case as as uh, food production is ramped up? There are two problems with that argument. The first is the assumption that food is all about calories and nutritional intake. But agricultural production is a way of life. It's more than just having enough to eat. Uh, it, there's a lot more linked to agriculture than just calorific intake. And the second problem with that argument uh, is almost like arguing that there shouldn't be poverty in the world because banks have lots of money. That if you could just distribute the money in banks, everybody will be better off. Uh, and so what is really needed is empowering people in their loc- localities to be able to participate in agriculture as a cultural activity. And that part of that includes producing food, trading it, but a much larger part of it is giving people a a purpose that is connected with land. And that's a very important aspect uh, of human existence. And therefore, the argument that you can just give people surplus food really does not help to address the broader purpose of agriculture, which is really a way of life, as opposed to simply finding enough to eat. 
So what do you expect to see over the next, let's say, decade uh, in agriculture, especially in Africa, but around the world? I, I think globally what we're likely to see is a great attention to different ways of producing food. Uh, we're already seeing, for example, people thinking about converting houses uh, or designing houses so that the rooftops can be a place to produce food. Uh, we are going to reconnect uh, with agricultural production in ways that we used to do in the past, but with greater use of science and technology. So the idea of, of uh, local production and sourcing of food is going to become an important part of our, of our lifestyles. And secondly, those countries that have been importing food, particularly African countries, are going to be investing more both to trade locally and regionally, but also to contribute to the global food basket. And so what we expect to see in the next 10 to 20 years is, in fact, diversification of uh, agricultural trade uh, with more players participating in it at different levels, both for global trade but also for local trade. Professor Calestis Juma, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Mm-hmm.